Thank you, Eric. I appreciate your uh, your stepping up to introduce me. I um, I have to say it's uh, I'm I'm so glad to see some people here tonight. I mean, I realize we're up against uh, Julie Tamor and uh, and and Eisner and a huge event over there. And I uh, maybe some of you don't know about that. Maybe if it's not too late to leave. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but but I am absolutely delighted to be able to be here with um, with Sebastian because I've I've known him, I've watched him evolve over the last uh, 25 years, and he's had an amazing trajectory. And I want to jump right in and, and figure out what's going on in his mind right now. Um, so to start out, his maybe you probably know his bio. I won't dwell on it too much, but he he grew up in Germany. He went to the University of Bonn, and um, he came to to Carnegie Mellon, where he was a professor, and uh, we share that connection. And then he did a number of projects there related to telerobotics, and also was really a pioneer in machine learning, and wrote, co-authored a, a, the, the, the major textbook in, in our field having to do with probability theory and learning, probabilistic methods in robotics. It's a major reference text. And in the, while he was doing that, he um, he also started working on, got interested in, in driving, and was a, a major player in a development called SLAM, which he'll hopefully talk about, since simultaneous location and mapping, which is a way of controlling robots and having them simultaneously figure out where they are and map their environment. So he's a pioneer in that area. Then he, we were able to um, lure him out to California Unfortunately, not to Berkeley, but to Stanford. But he went there and immediately um, launched into a major project, which uh, became the uh, competition for the for the um, the Grand Challenge, the DARPA Grand Challenge, a drive across the desert with an unmanned vehicle. And he was up against his old uh, mentor and a colleague, um, Red Whitaker at Carnegie Mellon. We both know he's a very formidable opponent, and uh, he won. He beat Red. So uh, yes, I, it was a major moment, and um, two people, in, one of the person at least in the audience was um, from Google. Uh, was it Sergey or Larry? Larry was there, and so it wasn't too long after that that um, Sebastian, um, actually with one of my ex-students, um, went to Google and they started doing um, they started doing street. Um, Street View and the Google Car Project, the Autonomous Car Project, which is uh, which is both of those are major initiatives that have changed the world. And then he has gone on um, to start another a major robotics conference, which we're going to talk about. And then most recently taught a course in AI, a massive online open course with Peter Norvig, and that was. Um, I, I subscribed or registered something like 100,000 students. That created, that was the beginning of the MOOC revolution. And then Sebastian went on to found Udacity, a private company to, to basically make this available more broadly. So he still has his connections with Stanford. He's an associate professor there, uh, adjunct professor. He, has, um, he still has his associations at Google, and he spends a day a week there working on his projects, including the Google Glass, which, um, where did that get to? Okay. Um, and we're going to talk about that. And he's also now, um, he's CEO and, uh, and heading up Udacity. 
So he's somehow juggling all these things, but um, I'm, I'm not at all surprised, and I think he's going to be doing new things, so we're going to try and figure out what those are. So what we're going to do is talk for about maybe 25 minutes and then open the floor up to questions. So think of your questions. We'll have about 15 minutes of those at the end. Okay, so with that, um, Sebastian, I'm going to start by um, reminding you of a time that w one of my earliest memories of connecting with you was um, in, a, in, in this setting reminds me because we were both in a conference in Nice. And um, it was a robotics conference, and in the, someone came and told us that there was an amazing chef that had opened up a restaurant, but it only opens up certain nights of the week, and you'll never know when. So we said, we have to go to this. And um, so we had a group of people that were going to go, and you just line up outside and see if it opens. And so <laughs> as a backup, uh, Sebastian said, well, I'm going to make a reservation at another great restaurant that I know of, of, of three-star, five-star restaurant. Um, just in case. So we go to this place and there's nobody there and there's a big padlock and we're like, and we sit down and just sort of like, okay, well, we'll wait for the other reservation. And um, all of a sudden the, we hear this clanking and the door opens and this amazing um, restaurant opens and they said, you're the first ones here. Come in. And they served us this meal with like, like boar's heads and amazing wine list and it was phenomenal. We ate like, like and by the time we, uh, we left, there was a line like around the block of this place and we come out sort of staggering out and someone said, wait a second, what about that other reservation? Did anyone cancel it? And then we, and there was a moment and, and Sebastian said, let's go. <laughs> so we went to the second restaurant and I thought we'd just have a little snack or something like that. Sebastian orders the full like five course prefix meal and he goes over to the sommelier and then suddenly there's a giant magnum of, of red wine appearing. I've never, I've never sort of recovered from this, uh, from this night of debauchery. So I just wanted to know, is that typical for you, Sebastian? <laughs> it's typical for me when you and I know. <laughs> I should say I'm slightly embarrassed to be here. I think when I was a um, visiting a student at Carnegie Mellon, Ken was the person I was looking up to and I aspired to be like him. So I think we should, I should be interviewing you, not you me, no, uh, no, with your no. great work. But um, yeah, so that was an interesting um, um, event. Um, it was the only conference ever where I let the organizers pick everything, including my, 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 my bedroom. And they uh, came in and, um, and I wanted to pick up my, my key and they said, oh, your roommate is already up there. I said, what roommate? Well, yeah, we have a double room for you assigned, and your roommate is up there. So I go in there, and I'm Eric, I've never met before, and says, I'm rooming with you. He's under the shower right now, so I look around, there's one queen-size double bed. <laughs> That's how the conference started. So I look at him, he's not my type. Um, so I end up going back to the reception and finding out my own room. Interesting. Okay, I didn't know that, Rico. Um, but good. All right, I'm glad we're opening up here, because... Uh, <laughs> You know, we have our glass of wine. Everybody should be. We just want to keep it loose here. I want to go back, um, Sebastian, to your to your early days. And I'm, I've always been curious about this about you. Um, can you, in like three minutes, give us a, a sort of history, like from birth to your PhD? Um, <laughs> born, raised. Um, I had a I had a, um, a home where there was a lot of fighting going on, sadly, and lots of characters going on. And early on, I decided I just want to be part of it. So I did my own thing for most of my life. And then in high school, uh, I remember the seventh grade, I was kind of a little bored. And I was a mediocre student. I was like a B-minus student. And I, I knew I was not a strong student. 
Um, so I made myself a little competition to make school more fun, which is no more homework assignment for the rest of my life. And it's actually hard in Germany, homework, homework assignments. Oh. So I, I managed to, to get around and I copied everything almost religiously from other students, even though I could have probably done it myself. And I didn't prepare for exams. So often when the exam was like at noon, I would spend the morning in the other classes learning up, reading up on it. And I kind of made it through, through high school. Um, so it was kind of the, the worst nightmare of any parent. Um, and I carried this on. I carried this on my college years. Um, whatever my professor says one, one thing, I did exactly the opposite. And it's usually a stupid idea. <laughs> I don't recommend it. But occasionally, it's a good idea. So I did a lot of stuff that my professors wouldn't want me to do. Um, and I keep doing this, to be honest. I, I just don't care about rules. So actually, that's good, because I think that does characterize a lot of what you, the way you. All the pain I gave to you in your life. <laughs> yes, me personally, but no, no, in general. I mean, I think, um, so it's kind of a rebellious nature. I want, can you talk a little bit more about this? I mean, was it, were you rebelling against authority in general, or was there um, this idea that you could do things differently, you could get away with it? I mean, I'm just curious about your. I, I didn't think of my, myself as rebellious. I, I did, had no ax to grind. It was more, I just didn't get it. I mean, I'm not that smart, but I always felt like there's this thing that people say that kind of feeds logical, but isn't. Like, why are women wearing skirts and men not? Um, all these things in life that we kind of make up. Um, so I often, I often think there's, there ought to be some better way. And in Germany in particular, Germany is very conservative. It's much more conservative than the United States. I mean, we, we are the land of, of freedom, the land of like, um, innovation, the land of, of, of where people went and, and claimed their own land and fought for themselves. Germany is like an entitlement society on, on steroids. Um, so there, I mean, if you question anything about anything, it's actually, it's actually wrong. And I just didn't get it. I, I felt life is much more rich than that. So I, I wanted to explore and, and see what's happening. And really think about how can I help other people? How can I make the world a better place? It sounds like a big thing. Um, but how can I invent stuff that's interesting? And all these structures in Germany, these hierarchical structures, you don't, you don't stick out your neck and so on. I tried to publish papers at age 22, which no student ever does in Germany. Um, it just didn't fit in. But I, I, I'm not happy to, to just sit and comply. I, I mean, I break a lot of porcelain in my life, I tell you. Um, but like in many cases, these things that we have around us are just completely historical. They're artifacts from different technologies, different eras, different political systems. And it just don't make sense anymore. So I think someone has to just go in and just think about this logically. And then we think about logically, you arrive at very different answers. Well, so were there someone who sort of gave an, was an exemplar for you, like a mentor or um, a hero or somebody that you know showed you this way, or did you just sort of invent it? <sighs> Boy, I'm still inventing it. I don't know. Um, I had two people who really formed me in my kind of young adulthood life. Um, one was Tom Mitchell, who's a professor at Carnegie Mellon, whom we know well. And, and Tom, um, Tom had this, this one moment that completely kind of got me which was, I, he owed me work. I was running a conference. He owed me something. He's a professor at Carnegie Mellon. And I went with him and said, Tom, the conference will not take place if you don't do your work. And you have to do it now. I know you don't like doing it. Do it. And he said, no, I woke up this morning, Sebastian. I said, no more guilt in my life. <laughs> he smiled at me. Then we spent an hour drinking coffee talking about science. He didn't do his job. And the conference was just fine. <laughs> and I realized, like, so much of us are just guilt-driven. We, like, have these moments. And it's okay to, to do things differently. It's okay not to feel guilty. And, and often the guilt is not even justified. It's, like, guilt imposed on us where others kind of control us with the mechanism of guilt. I had a ton of it in my childhood. My, my parents were very Catholic, and guilt was an elemental part of my life. 
Um, there was a moment where I felt, look, that is so cool. And I've been going around to people. I often have like one of my conversations with people say, hey, you know what, just drop this guilt thing. It doesn't really matter whom to blame, right? It matters what, what the outcome is, right? Could be my fault, I don't care. Could be your fault. Um, let's do the right thing. It's great. I mean, I can relate to that because as a Jewish kid, um, <laughs> you learn to navigate guilt or negotiate it in interesting ways. So that's one great thing my, our mothers give us, I think. Um, all right, so you, you get to this point of um, graduating high school, you go to college. I mean, when did the interest in robotics come in and how did that end up and wind you up at CMU? Yeah, so I, I was a pretty unfocused college student. I cared about philosophy, psychology, biology, medicine, some medicine computer science, um, and I always cared about people. Um, I mean, it's my passion. I, I studied Scientology at some point, not as a member, but more as an outsider looking into the organization, and just care about, like, how do people work, because I think it's the most important thing there is in the world is us. And um, at some point, I picked AI, artificial intelligence, uh, because it's the most practical thing to do intelligence. Like, if you're a philosopher you, or a historian, you can speak about artificial intelligence and, and human being in a very broad sense, but you don't really build it. You don't really understand it, to be honest. You, you pretend you understand it, but you don't really understand it. But if you go down and really do the bits and bytes, you can't do anything really complex. I mean, maybe you can build a, a self-driving car, but not anything as complex as a human. But you can understand it. And that, to me, was the moment when I realized, like, in this big stack of worrying about people, I needed to get it. I need to understand every bit and byte. And that made me turn into a robotics person, uh, building robots, because robots is our best copy of, of what a human might look like in the technology world. So actually, let me, let me ask you about that. But by the way, I have to mention, when you say AI around here, it's, uh, it's not, it's, I mean, something else. Uh, it's Aspen <laughs> Institute, okay? Uh-huh. Um, so uh, the other AI. I'm talking about the big AI. The other, just say the other AI, okay? okay yeah, um, but uh -huh. when you get to, so I like what you're saying about the idea, if you want to understand how humans work and you can build a machine and sort of, because then at least in the machine you get to understand it, right? But um, I want to ask you about this because one of the biggest problems in robotics, from I, th I think we both agree on, is uncertainty. That the robot is constantly surrounded by uncertainty. The environment is uncertain. The robot's own state is uncertain. And the interactions of what, a what an action will do is uncertain. So trying to basically perform actions in that highly uncertain environment is extremely difficult. And one, one technique that you've really championed and, 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 and has been very successful is using probability theory. Um, can you talk about that in the terms of how that relates to what you just said about this idea of sort of understanding the, the system? Yeah, I mean, first of all, Ken will be way too modest to say this, but his work on uncertainty robotics predates mine and is probably more significant. Um, but um, yeah, so I, I, I really try to understand what intelligence is, and I, I'm really far away from, from understanding it. But uh, obviously, we learn, and obviously, we are in an environment where we have to juggle uh, amazing amounts of uncertainty, every one of us, every day. And we somehow cope with this, right? So we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, whether we're sick, what's happening to our family, what's happening to our job. All these things are massively threatening things that are uncertain. And on and, and the other side, kind of when, when Ken was a grad student, the, the paradigm in robotics was, let's just brush this aside, let's assume we know everything, and then build a robot. And people did this, right? So what most robotic scientists would say is, a, like one of our technical terms here, but they put these omniscient kind of robots that knew everything. And even then, it turns out to be really hard to make an arm that does this, that grasps around here, picks up this water bottle, 
right? That's like those type of problems that I think Ken studied in his PhD thesis. Um, so I, I mean, I wasn't the only one, but Ken was, was one of the pioneers and many others, Reed Simmons, um, started thinking about what does it mean robots to learn and really to, to acquire information from the environment to become smart. And that was kind of the key to everything in many ways. Uh, and it really changed the field of robotics as a field. And from today's perspective, it looks unsurprising. If you look at Google, Google is a big learning machine. It just goes out and learns everything about the web. And our robots are big learning machines. They go in the physical world and learn everything there is to learn. But at the time, it was just a very different paradigm. People thought differently. They thought intelligence was all about playing chess. In chess, you know everything, right? You know the rules of chess. And what's hard is the combinatorics of sorting out what to do next. Uh, in the physical world, it's the opposite. We don't plan very much, but juggling this uncertainty is a really big deal. Good. OK, so in, in terms of the competition, let's go back to um, the Grand Challenge, mm -hmm. this, um, you know, this showdown in the desert with you and Red. and field of others. So what do you think it was that gave your team the advantage? I mean, what was the insight? <laughs> luck. No. <laughs> That's it. Luck. Plain <laughs> luck. Okay, so for those of you who don't know it, um, DARPA is a part of the U.S. government, launched a competition in actually 2003, a long time ago, um, and they offered a million bucks to a team that could build a robot that would drive 100 miles through the desert. And the world was given waypoints, but nothing else. Um, so first year, Carnegie Mellon, which is the big bully in the space, um, came in first, but they only did seven miles out of 140 miles. And next year, I, I entered, and um, with me, about 195 other teams. And this, the, the road was unknown, but we had like little kind of GPS coordinates. But these robots had to go in and make these crazy decisions, how fast to drive and where to steer. And if in this 130-mile course you would make one mistake, you'd be dead. You'd go up in flames, and, and many robots did. Um, so we, we actually um, did win this. Um, 11 minutes ahead of, of Carnegie Mellon. Very lucky, it's really, I mean, completely random in my opinion. Uh, so I always felt that it wasn't us winning, it was really the team winning, the, the field winning, the world winning, because we, we, we had envisioned this technology which looked completely undoable at the time of making robots drive through an empty desert trail. And that was the day when five robots came back and did it. It was completely amazing. It's like, I mean, for us geeks, it was like flying to the moon and back. Um, a big deal for the rest of the world. Okay, I mean, there's sports and so on. Um, but it was a big deal. In fact, the, if you go to the Air and Space Museum in the second floor, our car is now parked there. It's actually in the, in the mall. It's the only car that ever made it into an Air and Space Museum. Um, so right next to the Lunar Lander capsule, and so you can, you can go and see it. With a big Red Bull sticker on it, a Volkswagen, in an American Air and Space Museum. It's very ironical. But uh, the, um, the thing that, that made us work was learning. I mean, we, we treated the car more like a buddy, like a, like a, like a practicing driver. So I would take it out. We had this thing where we wanted to make the car understand how fast to go. And it's a really important thing. So in the desert, when you go too fast, you rip your car apart. When you go too slow, you lose. So what we did is um, I had my postdoc, Mike Mondemel, drive manually. And it would copy his driving style. It would learn, like, when does he slow down and when does he speed up? And literally copy. Now, what happened is Mike is an American, very kind of conservative person. I love him. But I found it was too slow. So I went out the next day myself, and it copied me. And it became 20% faster, which <laughs> ended up doing really, really good. But I always treated these robots as buddies, as someone who has this limited intelligence, but they can learn. And they can learn from you, and you can learn from them. And that was very different from any other team. Any other team basically said, it's a hardware challenge, and we have built sturdier machines, and we can go fast if the machine is just strong enough. That's interesting, because it was this idea of the empirical, right? So you. <clears throat> You built, a, built it up from examples 
of lots and lots of um, runs in the desert, right? There was lots of data being collected, and there were so many parameters to tweak. The other teams tried to essentially do this top-down idea, you know, deductive, trying to use their intuition to set these parameters. But your team was very different because it was, let's, let's just try this out and let these parameters evolve, which is very much consistent with this probabilistic yeah, model. Yeah, it's always kids, right? Oh, okay, we can jump right into that one. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, before we get to that, actually, though, let me ask you about the, t the people part, because the other thing that I, I was really impressed by was the, the way you engaged with students. You, rather than, um, again, rather than a top-down kind of uh, strategy, you, as I understand it, you had, you had a course um, that you were teaching at the time, an AI course, and you said, let's, you know, do you want to do this to your class? And they, they really rallied, um, and they started to build the pieces of it that really started having that happen. And can you talk about how that works, how you inspired these students? Oh, my God. Uh, I, I, I always ask myself, how do I make people work for me or with me? And I, I don't even know how this happens. I wouldn't work for me. Um, <laughs> um, we, so we, we, um, we, we went into this grand challenge, and I had no money. So I couldn't hire myself a team. So as a, as a professor, there's a trick, which is instead of giving them money, you give them course credit. Um, so they come all in, and they want to learn the course, and they get course credit. In fact, they're, technically, they pay for being on your team, pay tuition. So it's actually a, a great scam. And, um, and, and that, other things about these young kids is they've never seen where the ceiling is, right? We old people, we understand it can't be done because we, we really know it. <laughs> they just have no clue, right? So I told them, okay, today is October. In exactly two months, we're going to drive an autonomous mile on the old Grand Challenge track with a car. We didn't have a car at the time. We had no sensors. We had no software. We had nothing, okay? On December 1st, exactly two months later, we drove our first autonomous mile. In fact, we drove 10 autonomous miles on the first day. Um, I think what, what really worked is um, there's, a, there's a sense of a vision that I think people really related to. Um, I should say the response was fairly binary. So there were 40 students in the first class and 20 students from there on. The 20 students that ran away were very smart because they realized they're going to wreck their life. But the 20 students who stayed on, they dropped all the other classes. And it was one thing because they felt it was the coolest thing ever done, building a self-driving car. And, and there was a sense of vision, sense of mission. I, I wasn't already around when, when we did the lunar landing, but I feel the nation was probably in a similar notion of a moment where we could just do something amazing. And you know, sleep didn't really matter at this point. You just do it. It was. It was I think you, that's what you created. That kind of you know incredible moment where it just inspired all these students to come out and make you know, huge, huge sacrifices to do that. And you know, I, I do think one thing you, you also really exemplifies this kind of enthusiasm and passion. I remember you, you gave a talk at um, at Berkeley in my department, which is usually very conservative and. You know, then the lectures are lots of equations, and someone sitting there very dry, going over equation after equation, and very few pictures or anything. And Sebastian showed up, and he gave a talk with just started with videos, and he was literally bouncing up and down. In fact, my colleague said, "Is that the guy who bounces?" And I was like, "Yes, he's the bouncer." Um, and uh, you know, so can you talk about that a little bit? That kind of enthusiasm and how you keep that going? I, I don't know. I think I think it's, I, I just. I just love my life. I, mean, I just love my life. Um, I love my life. Um, 
there's there's so many great things to be done right now at this moment, and and so many things to be discovered. We are living in a world where technology is moving faster than ever before. I mean, Facebook, Google. Um, we talked about flying cars. I mean, stuff happening right now. We might be able to cure cancer very soon. Um, where it's just it's just totally amazing, and and being able to be a small piece of this is just really amazing, and it's really fun. Um, one of the things I, I took from my childhood and has probably been a thread in my life, and I only recognized this relatively late when I kept quitting jobs, like quitting tenure at Stanford, was I love the learning part of it. I love the uncertainty. I love the, like, I, if I had a chance, I would go to a big ship and jump over in the middle of the ocean and learn to swim. Um, and my wife <laughs> kind of doesn't like this so much on me because sometimes I go very crazy with these things. But I, I love these moments where there's something new to understand, where we can not knowing in the beginning and we emerge knowing and even if in between there's 20 failures where we do something very stupid and they're very painful uh, the moment to arrive at the other end is such a glorious moment where i think we've just done so much better than watching television all day and something like this and they're all, all over the place for all of us in everything we do in every sector we're in government uh healthcare um transportation all these things are badly mismanaged, where I think if you're smart enough, you can find a way around it. I mean, we talk about today disruption in the hotel industry by Airbnb or in the taxi industry by Uber. These are super smart people who find ways around it. And we find technological innovations that are really amazing, like cold fusion and so on. I think they probably work in nanoparticles. Um, I just think it's just amazing to be part of this. Um, well, let me ask you, so I want to quickly go through the Google, just a, two minutes on the Google moment. So you, go, you have this transition. Larry and you become friends and have some late night conversations, I presume, and then you you leave you leave Stanford, this big moment, um, and leave the safety net of the of tenure and everything else. And you go to you go to Google. And so is the the idea there is to change the world, just to really do something huge, and this is the idea to take this the the idea of the driverless car. And make I mean, it I, I can tell you I had many evenings with Larry Page, the CEO of Google, um, before he was CEO and now that he's CEO. And one thing that is completely predictable and completely reliable, he will make me look like a fool. Not in the sense that he uses the word fool, but in the sense that we have a technical discussion on anything, and I realize there's someone just smart, much smarter than me in the room, which kind of intrigues me, um, but also takes a toll occasionally when I come back very depressed, thinking, my God, <laughs> who am I? Um, I think one of the things, I mean, I said I had two mentors. I mentioned Tom Mitchell. I didn't mention Larry Page, and he's truly my mentor, and, and I, I have the extreme, extreme fortune to be close to him um, and, 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 and waiting every day to be kicked out by him, to be honest, when he realizes that I'm just not up to sniff. Um, but one of the things that he teaches me is, is, is really the, the ambition part of it, right? So if I have a product that can influence uh, 10 million people, he says, nah, that's not enough. I want 100 million. If I can make a plane and go Mark 4, he wants Mark 20. And more often than not, uh, he's actually right, it can be done. It's more that my boneheaded professor brain has kind of, over the many years, forced me into thinking that this can't be done because if it, it had to be done, it had right long been done before. Um, it's, it's quite amazing. I mean, we, we know from the public, Google much more as a search engine, as a company that's mobile. More recently, of course, like balloons that launched into the stratosphere. Um, but behind it is a set of innovators, both Larry and Sergey, who are extremely um, risk-taking, forward-looking. And they have that skill that I would also give Elon Musk and almost no other person that I've met in my life to really think logical and really think about like what can we do, like what is the right answer. Not 
what has always been done and what does society expect of us, but what's the right answer? Okay, so how does that lead to the Google Glass? There was an attempt to um, put a computer on your head and, um, and make the computer very seamless um, so that you don't take the phone all the time and check it like this. And now we all felt that the evolution of, of computing from mainframe to, to mini-computer to PC to tablet to phone would not end at this form factor that we have in our pocket, but eventually be so uh, integrated uh, that it's just there. Um, the, the alternative to Google Glass was a brain implant um, where you just go straight to the brain and it's going to happen. Um, it just felt at the time it wouldn't be such a great business proposal to, to have people go to surgery to enjoy Google. You heard um, it here first, though. So we, are, we felt to be really close to the brain, the closest you can be is to the dependencies the brain has built for input-output. And our input-output devices in the brain are things like eyes and so on and ears. So we felt being really close to it is a useful thing. It's still very experimental. I, I wouldn't say um, we're done. Um, there's a lot of things to be improved, in my opinion. But, I mean, the fact that we be able to build a computer with, like, dual-core and PC and all kinds of stuff and head-tracking units and display and speakers and, and, and IMU and, and, and gyroscopes and all this kind of stuff, uh, at 42 grams total, that actually um, felt pretty unbelievable before. So uh, let me ask you one. I mean, I have to. I have to ask this because um, you mentioned Germany earlier and the sort of idea about freedom there and freedoms. You know, there's a lot of concerns in your in, in your home country about the privacy in this regard. How do you feel that's going to influence something like Google Glass and how people receive it? Yeah. So people worry about this a lot, and and, and maybe made a mistake of kind of announcing it a little bit too early. Um, but if I were to um, think about privacy invasion with devices. Um, and worry about someone taking my picture, then I would actually equally worry, or more even so, about this device, because to me, the voice recordings are much more private than the pictures. Um, our faces are kind of known, but what we say can be extremely confidential. Um, so we already have devices with us that could be recording us. In fact, we don't know if we're being recorded right now at this moment. Um, the chips that come from somewhere in China, right? we don't know what's in there. Um, the recording doesn't cost much energy. You wouldn't see this. Uh, we know that there's all kinds of inter-US um, attempts to get access to digital communication through the NSA. Snowden has leaked some of this. Um, on the other hand, I have to say, I'm generally, personally, a big fan of transparency. I think the countries that are more transparent do better. I care about asymmetry. I feel bad if someone else encroaches on me and don't encroach on them. But I also feel if we had more of a transparency in general, we would do better. Um, I would love to see more, more government transparency if we could, could, could really push this in this country because I think that would really end corruption. Um, and we are living more and more in a more and more transparent world, whether we like it or not. I think we, we get to the point where big entities like the NSA will be unable to control this information and prevent leaks from going outside. It's an interesting time ahead. It's hard to, for me to have a kind of a value judgment. I have, don't have a goal where I want to go. I'm more observing what's happening. Um, I don't think this adds or subtracts much, in my opinion. We designed it to make sure that other people see immediately when I look at the screen, so that there's a clear language when I'm being distracted. The camera won't go on without the screen being on, so you can see it. Um, see, we have some interference here. It doesn't like the... Uh, there's something it doesn't like in that... It's like hissing up here, this uh, speaker. Okay, maybe can you turn it off? All right. Um, okay, good. So, speaking of the new world, um, you have a son and uh, Jasper, and he's six. Mm -hmm. So tell, talk a little bit how that's changed you, the idea of being a father. Well, his physical age has now officially passed my mental age, which is kind of cool. Um, 
many of you have kids, and obviously, uh, you don't get to get data with kids the same way you get it with like robots. Uh, I mean, I built one kid, but I, I'm not going to build a thousand kids to, to do the A/B testing necessary to understand how to be a good parent. Um, but I'm, I love my son. Um, in the beginning, um, because of my own understanding that like rule breaking is a good thing, uh, I, I felt there's any two rules that I really liked, and that's my personal preference, and I don't recommend to anybody else. Um, number one was happy parents make happy children. I always felt that the best way to bring up a child is to be happy yourself. So if there's a conflict between his happiness and mine, I take mine um, quite happily. And the second one was they're really hard to kill. Um, they, don't, they, keep, they keep living, right? So whatever you do. So if you don't attend to them for an hour, it's, it's fine, right? Uh, so do away with the fear and the guilt. And so far, the experiment is great. I mean, I assume every parent of a six-year-old will say I did great because every six-year-old admires their parents. So the data is still out there. And I won't get a chance to rerun it in this life. Um, but it's, it's great. I mean, we break all the rules, honestly. We do a lot of stuff. I think he was driving cars when he was age three. Um, it's interesting because I, I have a five-year-old, and I, it's, it, we were reading this book called *The Lonely Doll*. I don't know if any of you remember this. It's, um, it's a great book, but there's a scene in there at one point where she gets spanked, and she was like, "What is spanking?" I was like, <laughs> "Oh, you're so lucky. You don't know that that is." Um, okay, so that brings us to learning, and I, 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 you've mentioned learning, and one of the things that's always fascinated me is that this whole idea, this revolution of MOOCs, comes out almost simultaneously with. Um, you, Peter Norvig, and Andrew Ng, Daphne Kohler, they're all, all four of you are really experts in AI and machine learning. So yes. what? And Anand Agarwal from MIT edX is also a machine learning Oh, person. interesting. Okay. So why is it that experts in machine learning have this big insight into human learning? So I've long concluded if you want to do something new, stay away from all the people who are in that field. Pick random people from other fields, but don't go into the field because everyone in the field, like the school of education, yeah. they're, they're, I think they're incapable of dreaming up how to use technology. Sorry, that might be a very stark comment, but obviously the history is right because they're so engraved in their specific way of thinking. Um, so this started out really at Stanford, to be honest, and it started out these MOOCs, uh, massive open online courses, with the course that Peter and I offered, um, motivated by Sal Khan, who is one of my heroes. Um, that attracted then 160,000 students, right? So more than a, the biggest stadium in the world can, 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 can fit was our student body. And it kind of energized the world into thinking, wow, perhaps the $50,000 tuition fee per year is not the final answer to learning. And it dawned on me that the biggest thing I can do with my life, to be honest, I mean, I've built self-driving cars and I've built things like Google Glass and Loon and other things, the biggest thing I can do with my life is giving people a chance for education. I mean, it's really democratized education. Um, and we have the world's best education in this country, but it's not democratized. It's not accessible. Very few people can come in. You have to be extremely exceptional. It's very exclusive, and it drives its, 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 its brand through exclusivity. Um, so I, I had the dream, and Daphne and Andrew, my, my dear friends, had the same dream with Coursera, to really build something that could really get to everybody in the world, or at least everybody has broadband access, which is about a third of the people in the world. And, and it's been a great journey. Um, the reason why I so believe in this, I believe in people. I believe we are the, the thing that's the best thing out there. And education can really empower people to help themselves, right? It's like you give a man a fish and they have dinner for a night, as a saying, but you teach them how to fish and they are served for the rest of their life. 
I mean, especially coming from Germany, we, I didn't vote, go in the third world country, but my education was pretty bad, honestly. We had like 1,200 professors and uh, students, 1,200 students and four professors. I wasn't, it wasn't that great, and most of what I learned, I taught myself. I felt it ought to be so that every kid in Africa can go and learn something great. Every kid in China, every kid in, in Bang Bangladesh, or, or whatever place we'd be talking about. And this is not the case today. And, and looking differently in, in the home country here, every 35-year-old, every 40-year-old, every mother who raised kids wants to get back in the workforce should have a chance. Every person who's stranded in Detroit because the automotive industry kind of went bankrupt should find a new thing to do. And we are so not set up for this as a society. We're so engraved in, in common ways of thinking. Um, I just felt I need to do this. So I started a company called Udacity. Uh, it's like audacity without the A, audacious without the A. Um, and we are, uh, have about two and a half million students. Um, we reinvented ourselves several times over again. Um, our most recent data shows in the last 12 weeks we've been growing 20% every week. Um, so there's something there, I think, that the, that the time is ripe for education, I think. So let's talk more about this, because it is a, it's, it's a huge potential force. It, actually, all the higher education, you know, the traditional higher institutions, such as mine, have joined various forms, edX and um, Udacity and Coursera. And I'm curious how you feel it's evolved over the last year or two. I was talking to John Sealy Brown earlier, who's here tonight. Um, he, you know, we were, he was curious about the experience in San Jose. How, what have you learned from that experience? Yeah, so it's, it's not without um, <laughs> risks to um, change higher education. Um, not everybody will love you if you do this. Um, we decided um, to assist the system. So our initial game plan at was let's go after inner city schools. Um, we worked uh, with schools that so the Governor Brown um, in California had created, like Oakland Military Institute, um, college track, organizations that we worry about, like ethnic kids, low-income kids, and let's give them a chance to experience college. And we can do this at a tenth of the cost of a regular college class, and we can do this while they're still in high school. So when they apply to college, they have a chance, they can show credentials, they can get college credit. And I baked up this idea with the head of a local university, San Jose State University, which is the biggest university in Silicon Valley. And we went out and started classes that cost 150 bucks a pop, as opposed to 1,500, which is the regular rate for, for, for these kind of classes, and cater them mostly to high school kids. Um, and we felt we were doing something great. We were really helping kids into college, giving them a perspective, and we got amazing feedback from these students. The flaw in the system was that between the governor of California and the unions, the California Faculty Association, which is a 44,000-member association of professors, the word that you could teach something at a tenth of the cost of the student as currently done wasn't uniformly welcome. And I found myself um, as a little pawn on a chessboard between uh, Sacramento and, and the teachers of California, where I became the uh, enemy of the state number one in every dimension. There's been videos put out that fault me for the uh, subprime mortgage crisis by <laughs> In addition to a, a public campaign against us, there was also a private one. They changed all the rules so that big class sizes would require complete different approvals. They could delay any class I have by many, many, many years. So the outcome was um, pretty sad. I kind of ran away, um, decided, look, it's not right if people don't want to be helped. Um, I, I have to admit, I walked away a little bit thinking that no one really cares about students. They all care about employment and unions and labor and, and, and power. 
Uh, very few people, I, I would say Government Brown cares greatly about students and I have a lot of admiration for him. But the system itself, um, as we often say, it's very hard to disrupt from within. Uh, we did a, a second thing with Georgia Tech. Um, they have no unions in Georgia, not going to work. Uh, we took a, a whole degree program that normally costs $45,000 and made it uh, put it on the market for 6000 bucks, and it's running really well. It has over 1,000 students. Uh, it's doing really well um, in my crusade to make college affordable. And we're holding in. Uh, I'm still waiting for the big thunderstorm to, to, to kill me. Um, but eventually I decided, uh, you look, um, there's no law against educating people, right? So there's, you can't really stop me. <laughs> so I went straight to companies like AT&T and Google and Facebook and, and, and Salesforce and many, many companies and said, why don't we just do it ourselves? Like, you guys know what you need. I can help you put it on the web. Let's make a new credential. Um, and, um, and you guys, earmark drops. Okay, so just two weeks ago with AT&T earmarking 100 internships. And we came up with this idea of a new degree. Uh, a new degree has not been invented lately. Um, uh, but why not? I mean, if you look at the right amount of education you need um, for a lifelong learner, I don't think it's like six years or four years. I think half a year is a good chunk. So we made something called a nano-degree. Nano as in a, a billionth of a degree, uh, so that the other guys wouldn't get upset about us. And, um, and now we have this new concept called nano-degrees. We have five of those announced. We are building many, 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 many more. Uh, we're finding amazing growth. Um, the first day we, we launched it, 50,000 students signed up for it. Um, it's, it's a tour de force, and I think it's really trying to bring innovation to the education space. What I hope to achieve is that there's going to be a pathway that companies see on par with the existing degree system. And when that happens, and it's, it's basically happening in a small number of companies right now, and hopefully more soon, I think we're going to ask this thorny question, like, what's good for the people, right? Let competition come in, right? So if I'm doing a bad job, you know, kick me out. But let it be based on what I do with the kids, how much I can help them, and how much I can place them in jobs. And if I do a good job, then we should ask the question, is college the way it's organized today, organized well? And it's a thorny question, and it's going to be thorny for the nation, because we have 1.4 million uh, college professors, um, many of whom are part-time and are working really hard and really ethical, great people. But I think we deserve to give our next generation of kids a better perspective than they have today. We have $1.2 trillion uh, college debt. We have an education system that is very mismatched with the job demand. And at the same time, we have a growing skills gap that McKinsey predicts to be 85 million open jobs by 2020 that cannot be filled because the education system is not holding up. To me, this is just jumping down a cliff. And we're jumping down a cliff because no one is really thinking, in my opinion. So I think someone just to do it and, and step in and, and try it. All right. You got some support here. You know, it's interesting. We called this uh, session... Um, taking on the Godzillas of uh, Detroit and um, robotics and academia. And, you know, as an academic, I, I have some misgivings. I mean, I'll just share them with you. I, I worry, I mean, my biggest thing is about uniformity. I, I worry that if we have a course, you know, that let's say the best professor in the country gives an AI course or machine learning or linear algebra, and everybody learns from that one course, that we lose the diversity of, the, of how the courses are taught. And so then every student starts thinking kind of similarly. And that's, you know, I realize that um, it's so counter to the way you've, your whole maverick way of thinking, you know, not doing homeworks, not, not playing the, by those rules. But I'm curious about that idea. Do you worry about the uniformity that might come I mean, from courses? I mean, are you courses? for uniformity or against uniformity? I'm against uniformity. So you want more diversity? 
yes. and the market will just dictate it. I mean, right now we have something like 10,000 calculus classes, and I can tell you they're horribly uniform. They, they teach specifically what Washington has designated as the right test for math. In fact, we have enormous amounts of teaching for the test, and the tests are uniform across the country. And I find it is a crime on humanity that we go in and, and take stuff. First of all, have this kind of top-down vision on how what testing is. Um, and testing is just multiple choice on a piece of paper. But they also teach stuff that's completely, utterly irrelevant. Like, we did classes for remedial mathematics, and we had to teach something called factoring of polynomials. Anybody in the audience has ever factored a polynomial, raise your hand. Thank you. Okay. Anybody who knows what it's good for in life, raise your hand. <laughs> So I, I, I can't figure it out. So factoring polynomials takes a piece of math that we never use in life and turns into a different piece of math that we never use in life, honestly. I've never, I'm a professor. I, I publish math papers. I went around to my colleagues and say, tell me, why on earth do we ever factor a polynomial? And there's one group of scientists, they're called control theorists, that occasionally use this, occasionally use this, okay? But they have to be a PhD-level control theorist and build elevators on planes to be even appreciate this, okay? Okay, those guys, okay, they're factor polynomials. There's maybe 200 in this country, okay? But all the eighth grade, ninth grade math students have to, to learn this? Like, what on earth is happening? Like, why is the school year 178 days long when the kids stopped working in agriculture 100 years ago? Like, why can't we even get that one fixed? Like, where is our creative power as America? Where are we as a nation? Where's our identity in going forward when we can't fix these basic things? So I'm all for diversity. I'm all against teaching the same class 10,000 times every year in this country over and over again, which is happening with calculus and so on. Um, but I think I'm also for quality. So if you look at the transition from education in the classroom to online, it's going to be just as impactful as the move from theater, stage play, to movies. And what movies have driven, you, you might argue, you might not like every movie, but they're certainly driven quality and they're driven investment. You can make a movie with like $100 million, and it's actually really good, to be honest. I mean, the experience of a good movie is actually quite amazing compared to your mediocre stage play um, 100 years ago, because at the time you weren't able to invest much money. So I think we should use the scale to make the experience great. I think, to me, the learning experience should be the same as, as uh, again, you might take offense, but as playing a video game, where we get so it's like sucked into the, the, the feeling. We all love learning. We all, our brains are wired to learn. Every kid learns like crazy. And we kind of switch that off with our regiment, uniform, testing, BS that we, we face, our kids face in middle school and then in high school. I think if we could revive that, we'd be so much more powerful as a society. Sorry, I'm getting carried away. <laughs> no, no, it's good. Okay. L listen, uh, let me, because we're going to open up to questions in a few minutes. Um, let me ask you about the learning, the Learner's Bill of Rights on this topic. I mean, you've been a proponent. Can you say something about it? Describe yeah, John C. D. Brown is in the audience and about 10 other people met about uh, two years ago to think about like, what is a learner bill of rights? And we want to just get together and, and, and before we even engage in this, ask ourselves, what is our value system? Like, what do we care, right? So we made a, a little, um, I think, 12-point pamphlet called Learner's Bill of Rights, maybe a little bit arrogant to call it that. Um, but we, we said that we care about transparency, we care about honesty, we care about focus on students. And we, we wrote down, I think, for example, I think it's really important to be tra transparent for, for financial perspective. So we should have a, an honest accounting where the money goes so that students can understand. We should have a, um, an honest commitment to embracing uh, innovation and, and be rigorous with our data so we can make the product, so to speak, better and better. Um, interesting enough, uh, the 
uh, feedback from, from in the news was, was sharply negative. It was criticized for being a for-profit company trying to make millions of dollars, and that's the common narrative from many, many writers, um, turns out. Uh, and the narrative is partially, I mean, many writers are professors, turns <laughs> out. And, and many of these guys are actually English professors, and um, they take an issue with, with that. Um, I think, I mean, I think we should have a dialogue about what's the value system in education, and what do we care about. I can tell you from my own experience, I've been with Ani Duncan many times, I've been with key decision makers, I've been with um, honorees from different countries, I've been with labor organizations, with presidents of colleges. Um, so it's really, really rare that someone says, we care about the student. It's really common to care about teachers, to care about the uh, establishment, to care about credentials, to care about the status quo, to care about politics, to care about money, all that stuff. Uh, I remember one day I was at Arne Duncan and we had a big meeting and um, we talked about all the things that MOOC would do to education and every concern that came up. And after 20 minutes I stood up and said, no one ever in the last 20 minutes even mentioned the word student here. Like, what's wrong with us? And everyone was like a little shocked, sitting back and say, oh yeah, yeah, of course, we are about the students. Um, there's an attitude in there that things just doesn't really connect to what we should really be doing. Okay, great. I, I actually, I'll mention one thing that um, came up in a discussion just very recently. We were talking about um, the idea of um, the classic idea of what many people learn outside of, let's say, higher education, but through learning trades and crafts. And so, you know, learning how to do carpentry or welding or, or things like that and construction. And the way that often works is by a kind of um, apprenticeship, kind of guild, kind of program, right? So one person trains another. And we were thinking that one of the best ways to learn, and I think everyone would agree, and I hope you would, is to teach. Yeah. Right, so you, if you can get people engaged with like not only learning things massively, but if they could actually turn around and then teach it to someone else, right? I think that would be a very interesting way of expanding the MOOC idea. So we came up with a, a new acronym. To throw, test it out on you. Massive online open guilds, mm. MOOCs. What do you think? MOOCs. Um, I I be careful um, because people won't understand the difference just from the phonetics. Uh, I, I so agree with you. And look, my little company is, is doing okay. Um, I wish there's so many more things I have to do. Um, I mean, we, we do technical training. You can get a job with Google or Salesforce with us. But I don't do great teamwork training. I don't do great physical training where you go into a woodshop and just build something. I think it's so important. Or we build a piece of art or a piece of music and just chew it and, and digest it. Um, there's, there's so many ways to, I think, to enrich learning. My wife does these massive Twitter role plays where she takes ancient literature, like, I don't know, a picture of a Dorian Gray, and people on Twitter reenact those roles live, and then the, the piece becomes a living piece where people can participate. Um, yeah, I mean, I think what you say is, is spot on. I wish I, I'd be more creative to figure out how to do it. Um, I think we should dive into these things. I think um, one thing that's really important to me personally is um, in education, everybody is opinionated, and no one has data. Um, it's amazing how little data is being used for anything. So, for example, if you go to any college and say, uh, obviously, you produce students that is hireable, how much value do you add? Like, do you ever compare the students from coming in to going out, or do you just look at the students coming out, which factors in your admissions process? I've only found one college that actually admitted to me that did this comparison. They measured how much people learned as opposed to how good people are in the end, and they found the learning was negative. And they said they don't talk about it. And I won't mention who that was, but it was a reputable college. Um, 
that we, 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 we kind of we are amazing. We are professors, we are extremely arrogant. We disrupt everybody except for ourselves. We put data on everybody else except for ourselves. And when, when you bring it back to yourself, you'll be the most hated person in education. Um, I think we should try these things. We should just relentlessly try them and try them and try them. And if you're worried about like six-year-old kids, try them with adult learners, right? People who basically can make their own decisions and then go and measure really measure the outcomes. My company is a measurement company. We measure like crazy. We measure every aspect of learning um, and, and see how it performs and how it affects future outcomes. And while I'm not where I want to be, at least we have a framework to think about. Like there's skills I want you to have and there's things I can do and time you spend on it. And I can measure the time you spend on it on the skills. And I can measure how much, much you meet this profile later and how little you met it before. If we did this, we'd be shocked how bad our education system is. Like a class in chemistry 101 with like 400 kids all sitting, this is your professor, where from the third row on, you're in distance education, can't be that good in my opinion. All right, good, good. You're provoking. So hopefully there's some questions out there. We're going to open it up since we come back to people. And that's been your theme, Sebastian. It's really driven you. And as a Berkeley professor, power to the people, I'm all for it. So let's open it up. We have time for a couple questions. Here's one, please. You say you love people, so do I. Every person here who's over 50 suffers from the fear that their memory is over full and they're losing their memory. Do you foresee an implantable device that's like a hard drive that we can use to supplement our brains so that we can be productive? <laughs> is there a role for so artificial I'm intelligence or <laughs> robotics here? I'm going to be extremely uh, provocational and please don't blog about it um, or tweet about it. So um, this device here obviously is right now a kind of an experience sharing device. Uh, you can take pictures and send to your loved ones and so on. But what I would love it to be is a device that's always on um, and it just becomes a memory. Um, the, the human brain is actually not that good in general. Um, and we know this because before we had print, before Gutenberg, the predominant way of, of carrying on information was from a human brain to a human brain. We are lousy in holding information. I mean, certainly I am. We are really bad in interfacing with the next generation of brain. So stories would kind of make it through society like the Earth is, is, is flat, even though the Greeks had known and proven, and every child can prove the Earth is round with a clock and a yardstick. So we had this kind of bizarre situation where information wasn't. And the moment we had the book, we had a way to copy information digitally. You don't think of books are digital today, but they are digital. The characters are digital, so you can actually copy them losslessly because there's only 26 of those and, 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 and they're really easy to, 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 to copy. So now we had this ability to take the, the cultural intelligence and put it into a library. And that was the most amazing thing for us. That really empowered the scientific revolution, the industrial revolution, and that makes us who we are today. And today, of course, we would never want to live without the book. Um, what this could do is it could make your personal experience and digitize it. And Make it available to yourself, like who is this person I'm talking to, I forgot the name, right? That's a common problem I have. I'm very close to 50 and it's very common. It's happened tonight. Uh, oh, you're John C.D. Brown. Oh, okay. Um, right? Name tags are great for this. But, but we could do more. We could also share information, right? So when I have a conversation with somebody, why does somebody else have the same conversation with this person? Why can't we just benefit from it? Like when we build a Google self-driving car and we have a problem of a plastic bag blowing across the highway, and the car makes a wild stop, and our safety drivers take over, and we made a mistake, right? So you have something to learn. We go in and program it in, and from that moment on, every car for the eternal future knows where the plastic bag is, right? We never have to train someone else again, right? We could do the same thing here. We could have so much training on it, on demand, that's available to you, 
that you wouldn't have to learn anymore. Like, why on earth are we learning spelling? Why on earth are we learning multiplication? Like, the stuff should be there and available to us. Um, all the way to complicated things in life. I mean, so many things to share. Um, I've given possibly the same speech 200 times over again. Like, why don't we just give it once and be done with it? Um, so many inefficiencies. Um, I think if we get to the point where this thing is always on, and maybe not this incarnation, but something like this, and really understand how to make it a seamless experience, it'll be as good to us individually as books have been to society. And it's going to be a massive change. That's one of the reasons why I'm so excited about this. And I know it's very provocative. I, I actually went to Germany recently and, and, and gave an answer like this in front of the president of Germany and the 40 topmost uh, industry officials in Germany. And the, the president of Germany stood up after and said, Mr. Thwan, you're scaring me. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh my god, I'm scared the head of Germany. <laughs> but, but I think it's going to happen, and it should happen. And it would be really amazing, because we are so good in so many things, and we live so much better lives today with technology than we did even 100 years ago. An ability to outsource our brain into a device like this will just make us so much better people. OK, so now fire off your <laughs> critique. <laughs> Sorry? I'm terribly impressed, particularly with MOOCs. I've done a couple myself. But, um, and I see the revolutions that are going on through these sort of innovations. And I also see the disruption that's going on, whether it's in the media or in the law, by the new technologies. And I see there's more return to capital and less and less to labour. Wages go down and people become unemployed. I was wondering if you had any hopes or visions for how society might cope with what's happening so that once again masses of people become employed. So you're saying you're pissed? They, they, so that they get some money, they don't even yeah. have to be employed, just so okay. that they have a decent living. Where did, where did you take your MOOCs on what platform? Coursera. Coursera. I, okay, now that I understand. Okay. Um, come, to, <laughs> come to Goodacity and try it out. Um, We'll be more technical. Um, so one of the, the things that is, is, is back in my brain is I think we are, we are going through a massive change in terms of employment. Um, for one, um, the pace of technology is picking up, and Silicon Valley is replacing bottom jobs, not top jobs. Uh, and that puts a lot of burden on people to be more educated, and also more educated throughout life, because we have to, our education expires faster than before. And very sadly, we live longer, thanks to technology. So it used to be, we used to live like 30 years, and now we live like 80 years. So it puts even more burden on us. Um, so the um, one reason why colleges are really happy is because of this, because there's fewer and fewer really productive jobs available, and they require more and more education. There'll be more and more competition for it, and that's one of the reasons why enrollment numbers have gone up, not down. And I see a big um, kind of a perfect storm come at us, to be honest. Um, we are hiding a lot of unemployment in permanent disability and long-term unemployment, and in bureaucracy. Like, your own university has 236,000 students and 186,000 bureaucrats, turns out. Um, there's a, a ratio of, of students to bureaucrats at UC is uh, 5 to 4. Um, I wonder, like, every, every student gets 0.8 bureaucrat or administrator. Um, like, why is that? I have to check that, but yeah. It's actually true. I mean, this is my Wikipedia knowledge. I should be careful. I said it to the Governor Brown in Reverend Brown said, like, yeah, there's a lot of that lab technicians, don't worry too much about it, but there's some truth traits. I mean, Obamacare, as much as I hate or love it, I won't disclose, but the uh, regulations surrounding it are 12.5 um, million words. If you print them out, as Mitch McConnell did, they are 8.5 feet of paper, like this much paper. 
Uh, and the constitution is 17 pages. So you really wonder about like, how come the 17 pages carried as well? I mean, it, this much paper that no one can ever read to, um, to define a, a law um, that is as simple as like healthcare for everybody. Um, so I think we are moving into a world where our service organization is kind of taking over. Um, I think the next step will be that we have to honestly face the fact that it's really hard to be productive as a member of society. And I don't know what's going to happen. Um, I think we're going to run into a, a bizarre situation where we realize that a lot of us can't be productive anymore. I mean, I hope with Udacity to help a little bit by giving people more education to be more productive. But the systemic thing sustains. Uh, some data points. Um, employment used to be lifelong. Like my grandparents had one job at a, li at a life. It moved into, right now it's measured about roughly seven careers during a lifetime. Sounds like a lot, but it seems to be the statistics. Average statistic in a job is 4.6 years is what, what people, Americans, uh, spent in, in one job. Um, and now we're moving into an age where employment is ad hoc. So take Airbnb or take Uber or take Odesk, these companies, they're being employed as long as you can work, right? So you can be a cab driver without any safety net whatsoever, or you can be a hotel operator with any safety net whatsoever. So I think we're going to move to employment on a monthly basis or, or so. And that puts even more pressure on us. I think our safety net is eroding. Um, and we have to grapple with this. We don't have the discussion at all today. No one is talking about this. But what I see right now in, in innovative companies like Airbnb and Uber is a complete radical departure from the unionized traditional um, safety uh, net employment model to something that's extremely driven by your capability at this point to make a contribution. And I think it's going to be good for my company because it's going to put education front and center for everybody throughout their life. So I'm going to make some money. Uh, but it's going to be, be bad for society. Yeah, I'm, I'm not that optimistic. I don't know what's going to come next, but it's going to be interesting. So there's so many questions, but unfortunately, this time, this hour is zipped by, and I actually have about 20 more questions, which I'm not going to get to. You just came out with a great new um, ratio that I'm going to do some research on, the um, bureaucrat to student ratio, the BS ratio. Um, I'm going to do some work on it. Um, you've mentioned a new concept that I hadn't heard before, nanodegrees, which I think is brilliant and really interesting. I um, also like your analogy that we're moving from an age of like, education as theater to education as cinema. And I think that's, uh, that's a really provocative way of thinking about it. It's an idea, since we're at the Ideas Festival. It kind of relates also to Julie Taymor, who's they've been doing a bit of theater and a bit of film in parallel with us tonight. Um, I want to thank you, Sebastian, because you're, you continue to inspire us. Your you're, like, energy, I mean, you squeeze so much into this one hour. Um, you're, you're a fantastic colleague and, uh, and friend and, and partner, and I want to just thank you for being here Thank today. you, Ken. Thank you.